Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. Hi there, I'm Andy, I'm one of the pastors at Salt, and uh, it's great to be here together with you, opening God's Word, and uh, yeah, big welcome to you. If you're, if you're visiting, we love that you're, you're here with us. Uh, a number of years ago, there was a book released by uh, an author called Michael Hart, and the book was called The 100. And uh, in this book, he ranks what he thinks is the 100 most influential people in the world, in history, from his perspective. Uh, scientists, explorers, inventors, philosophers, musicians, lots of, lots of famous people. And uh, who do you think got the number one spot? Uh, it was the Prophet Muhammad. He thought he was the most influential person in history. Uh, Jesus, I was like, I was thinking, surely Jesus should be... Jesus got top five. Uh, he was number three. A bunch of people asked him, why, why this list? Why, in particular, why is Jesus not number one? And he says this, The impact of Jesus on human history is so obvious and so enormous that few people would question his placement near the top of this list. Indeed, the more likely question is why Jesus, who is the inspiration for the most influential religion in history has not placed first. And he goes on to explain that the reason he gave the number one spot to Muhammad and not Jesus is because Muhammad's teaching looks to have a bigger impact on Muslims. That Christians aren't as devoted to following Jesus' teachings as Muslims are to following Muhammad. Which is pretty damning, right? That's pretty damning. Uh, Mahatma Gandhi once said this, He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And that was a while ago, but sadly, in many ways, things have not changed. Um, Christians today, by many, are seen as mean and hypocritical and gossipers and unloving. So here's a question. Why don't Christians look more like Christ? Why don't we look more like Jesus? Well, I think it's because we haven't understood this passage in Titus chapter 3. We haven't quite got it. So I think it's really helpful for us to dig into that. And I'm going to pray that God would be at work by His Spirit, helping us to understand this passage. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank You for Your Word. Thank You that You speak to us. Uh, we pray that as we, we look at Your Word now, that You would be speaking to us by Your Spirit. Help us to understand what it looks like to live our lives for you. Help us, change us, shape us to be more like Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, so we're in the book of Titus. We're almost done. And uh, Titus, if you've, if you've never been in the, the, the book of Titus before, it's towards the end of the Bible. It's written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a guy named Titus. That was his name. And he was a new pastor of a little church in Greece. And throughout the book, uh, we've seen a few things. We've seen uh, the big things recently, the last few weeks. We've seen that it's the grace of God that saves us. And it's transforming us. God's grace is transforming us to be more like Jesus. We'll see that a bit more as well today. We also saw how as Christians we're to act uh, and relate to each other within church and within family and within those kind of smaller unit dynamics. Uh, and now we're shown kind of a, a bigger transformation we're showing a transformation, a before and after transformation. We're going to come back to verse 1 and 2. I'm going to skip that a little bit. That's the after image. But first, we're going to look at the before image, and, uh, which we see in verse 3. And the big thing we see is that we were once slaves to sin. 
We were once slaves to sin. Have a look at verse 3, Titus chapter 3, uh, in your Bibles, in your phones, wherever, you, wherever you're looking at the Bible. Now, keep it open. Have a look at verse 3. It says this. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. That's a pretty bad before image, isn't it? It does not paint a nice picture of humanity. And sometimes though, with these before and after images, whether it's a home show or whatever it is, sometimes they really like exaggerate the before image to make the after image to try and make it look better. Uh, you get this particularly with um, those late night dodgy ads for, for products of infomercials or whatever. And uh, the product isn't that great. And so they have to have the person like really struggle to do basic tasks. Like the lady can't even open a drawer, a cupboard and everything just falls out. She's like, ah, why is this happening? Or this guy can't even, what, this lady's trying to drill a, anyway, everything just goes wrong. But it's like, buy the product because then you'll be able to open cupboards. And it's like, I don't need that thing. Uh, yeah, that, that kind of happens all the time. But that, I, don't think that, I don't think that's what's going on here. This is not an exaggeration. This is not an exaggeration. We may not have been all these things in verse 3 at all the time, uh, but it's certainly an accurate description of what we were at various times. And there's two different ideas covered in verse 3. Uh, firstly, the way we viewed the world was wrong. Uh, the way we viewed the world was wrong. It says we were foolish. That is, we had poor judgment. And we didn't have God's wisdom. And so we were without sense. We were without judgment, without good judgment. We were fools. And we were disobedient. We had unruly behavior. We were coming up with our own rules. Ignoring God, rejecting Him, searching for our own thing. And deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We'd wandered off from God. Didn't have good judgment following him, had poor judgment, wandered off from God, disobedient, uh, excited, enticed by worldly things, instead latching onto those things and finding meaning and purpose in other things besides God. And you might have experienced this. Without God, you're searching for meaning, you're searching for purpose in life, you think you've found something good, and you chase that thing, and you grab it, and it ends up being empty. It doesn't last the way you think, it doesn't fulfill you the way it's going, then you're looking for the next thing. And you're just chasing, chasing, chasing. You might be here tonight checking Jesus out. You're not calling, you wouldn't call yourself a Christian. You're exploring Christian things. We love that you're here. And you might look at verse 3 and think, that's, not, that's, a bit of a, that's a bit harsh. It doesn't feel like an accurate description of my life. But the problem is it's hard to know. Because one of the phrases there is deceived. Deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pe- pleasures. And the problem with being deceived is you don't know you're deceived. No one willingly deceived. You don't realize till afterwards that you were deceived. So we're a slave to this thing. We're chasing this stuff. We don't even know we've been tricked. So the way we view the world was wrong without God. And secondly, the way we we relate to each other is wrong as well. We get that in the second half of verse 3. We live in malice and envy. We're hated and hating one another, which again seems harsh. This is what it's talking about. It's talking about um, living lives of malice. So malice is really wanting to hurt someone, uh, wanting to do evil. To someone, so someone particularly getting back at someone. Someone does evil to you, and you're like, oh, "I'll get you," and you—it's like revenge or oh, envy. Uh, we're envious of what others have and what we don't have. We're, we're jealous and we're greedy of those things, and it can lead to hating others and, and being hated. 
which is very negative, and it's depressing. To be honest, it's a bit depressing. But this is how God describes life without God at the center, far from Him, living life our own way, and it's not good. It looks like freedom. It looks like freedom, but it's not. And the Bible talks about it as if we're under a curse. We're under the curse of sin. We don't realize we're under a curse until afterwards the curse is broken and we're set free and suddenly we realize that we were slaves, but we're under a curse. Like an enchantment in a fairy story. We've been enchanted. We've been bewitched. We're not doing the things that we should, but we can't help it. We don't realize at the time we're under the, this curse of sin. We're far from God, unable to, to break the curse on our, on our own. And that's described all of us at, at one point in our lives, every human, whether that's you now or that was you at some point in your life. This is all of us at some stage in our life. And it can seem desperate. And, and you can fall into a, a pit of despair. But we don't need to despair because in God's kindness, He doesn't leave us like that. He does something. And that's the second thing we see, that we've been saved by God's grace and mercy. That He does all the work. God does all the work and we get all the benefit. Have a look at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. So why are we saved? It's, it's there because of God's mercy, because of His kindness. Our salvation is not based on what's in our heart, it's based on what's in God's heart. When are we saved? It tells us when the kindness and love of God our Savior appears. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appears, that's when we're saved. And the word love there, the, there's a bunch of different ideas of love, um, particularly in the, the original translation, the Greek, there's different, ver- different types of love. And the love here is philanthropia, which is, uh, we get the English word philanthropy, which is the, the love of people. So philanthropists, they raise money and give to charities because they, out of their love for people, that's philanthropy. And that's the kind of love here God's showing. God loves people. He loves us. And He sees us in this state of perpetual sin. He sees us as slaves to sin, rejecting Him. And His response is merciful appearance to save. God appears as the man, Jesus. And Jesus shows love and kindness in how He lives, even more in how He dies. He dies and and rises again, and we're saved. We're saved by Jesus. We talk about that a lot at Salt Church, saved by Jesus, saved through Christ. But interestingly, interestingly, that's not how Paul describes how we're saved in this passage. He doesn't say we're saved, just, doesn't just say we're saved through Christ. According to the next verse, he says we're saved by God's Holy Spirit. Have a look at the second half of verse 5. It's saying, God the Father saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that saves us, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Saviour. So there's a couple of ideas there. It's God's, God the Spirit that saves us through the washing, the rebirth, and renewal. And when it, when it says washing, it kind of feels like it might be talking about baptism there, but it's not talking about baptism. Baptism is the thing that refers to what's going on here, which is the internal cleansing that happens when we're, the internal washing that happens when we're saved, that the Holy Spirit does. The purification of sins, washing us clean, no more sin. That's what God's Spirit does. The washing and the rebirth. 
through the washing, we're made new. It's like we've been born again. That's the, the rebirth that Jesus talks about with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, if you've read that before. He says, being born in the Spirit, born of the Spirit, as Jesus, Jesus calls it. So rebirth, we're made new. So washed, rebirth, and renewal. We're made new again. Uh, God's Spirit renovates us. Something completely new, something completely different, renewed. Now, it's a bit like apples. Um, so sometimes you get an apple, it's got a bruise on it, and uh, I'll give apples to my kids, and uh, one of them will be a bru- have a bruise, and they'll come back and be like, Dad, it's got a bruise in it, can I get a new apple? I'm like, no, uh, apples are expensive. Uh, I'll, just cut it. <laughs> I'll just cut the bruise out, and here you go, it's still good, eat, eat around it. Um, and uh, we kind of think, I think the same thing about our sin, that our sin, just a, it's a part of us, and God just kind of cuts out the sin, and we're, we're, and we're good. Um, but no, it's not. It's not. Sin is not a part of us. Sin is riddled through our whole bodies. We are, our, sin is so much a part of who we are. It's not like just a little bit of a bruise. It's like we're rotten through of, with sin. You can't just cut out a little bit. You end up cutting out the whole thing. Uh, you need to, need to start again from scratch. That's what God does. He, re, he rebirths us. Starts again from scratch. Washes, renews rebirths us he transforms us he saves us that's how he does it and now we're nice apples (laughs) no longer gross rotten apples we're saved by jesus death and resurrection lots of passages throughout the bible tell us that but we're also saved by god's spirit at work sent by god the father so this is incredible kind of trinity moment happening in these verses here. That God, our God, that we follow is three in one. God, Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one. And what's the triune God doing together? Working together to do? The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, working together to save us. That's what God's doing. To save us. Isn't, isn't that incredible? That's what God is doing. He's at work to save us. And the whole, pro, whole process is God at work. It's not us, it's God. You might have done this during the week, our small group during the week. Uh, we spent a little bit of time. We printed out the passage and kind of underlined or circled all the, all the parts where God did, was doing different things. And uh, I found that helpful, so I thought we'd do it together um, in, case you, in case you weren't there. And so we'll go through the passage, verses 4 to 7, and circle uh, all the things, all the works of God. Okay, so we've got them there. Uh, so we'll see how we go. I'm going to use blue. Um, it says, But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior... So there you go, this first bit. Who's, it's God, God's love and kindness of Savior appeared. He saved us. That's God saving us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. That's God again whom he poured out on us, so he pours out on us that, generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that's God again, uh, so that having been justified by his grace, we're justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. It's, it's, it's there, it's half of it's circled. Uh, that's God at work. He's the one doing it. I'm go- I'll use red and I'll circle the things that we do. Um, So there's no red. (laughs) Uh, We don't do anything. This whole thing, this whole thing in this passage is just God doing, he's doing the saving. We're stuck in sin. 
We couldn't do anything. We're stuck in this deep pit. We can't get out. God is the one who saves us and he does everything. He does all the work to save us. So here's a question. Looking at that, looking at all the things that God has done to save you, how do you feel? What kind of emotions hit you? Thankful, yes. Super thankful. Unworthy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We don't feel worthy at all, do we? That's right. Secure. Yeah, because it's not us doing it. God's done it. Um, There's a security in that, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I think for me, I feel, oh, sorry. Purified, yeah. That's, that's a great outcome, isn't it, of it? That, um, yeah, lovely. Good. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, like, that's good. Um, uh, yeah, lots of emotions. Um, I wrote down a few, amazed, overwhelmed, thankful, loved, appreciated, astonished. Just all things God does for us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it, but he does it anyway. Um, it's a bit like, a bit like um, I, I, here's a little illustration that might be helpful. Uh, I saw, read about a bunch of these little, little things that um, in, in old parts of London and uh, older parts of the older cities in the US, you can see these plaques on buildings and um, they are uh, yeah, up around on the side of the building. They're fire insurance plaques. So back when um, fire departments were private, it showed that you were a member or you paid your fees to the fire department and um, it meant that, uh, many people thought it meant that the fire department would then put your house out if it caught on fire. Uh, And if it doesn't have one of those, they're just, watch it burn. (laughs) Should have paid us the 70 bucks. Um, And uh, yeah, and so I think some people kind of think that's a little bit what's going on with God that he's happy to save us, but we've got to do something first. You know, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to earn it a little bit. We're, you've got to be good first, so you've got to do something. God will save you, but you've got to put a bit of effort in and kind of meet him halfway, you know. But the problem is that's not true. It's not true of God. It's not true of firefighters either. Um, historians have objected to a lot of these kind of assumptions. They've shown it's not true that firefighters would put out... Yes, it was privatized, and people, certain buildings, certain companies paid money, but they would put out a fire regardless of whose building was on fire. Just for the sake of the whole city, that was the case. You want to put out a fire as quick as you can before it spreads. And the plaques were still there. They were legit. But that was more of an advertising thing to promote the, the insurance companies. And uh, so the firefighters, doesn't matter whether you paid your fees or not, they'd put out your fire. You didn't have to be good. You didn't have to do anything. Uh, and that's the same with God. Nothing we do, nothing we can do. He saves he saves. You don't have to do anything first. You don't have to meet him halfway. You don't have to be a good person. Nothing. Nothing. We're all at one point enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We were saved because of his goodness. We were saved because of his love and, and mercy and, and grace. So this means we can't take credit. We can't take credit. Just like if your house burns down and the firefighters put it out, you can't take credit for that. We can't look down on other people who haven't been saved yet. Uh, there's an old saying that I think is helpful, coined in the, 19, uh, the 1500s by John Bradford, uh, and it's this. Uh, it's, there but, by the gr- there but for the grace of God go I. Which just means, if it wasn't for God's grace, I'd be the same as that person, whoever that is. You know, you can't look down on someone because it's God's grace that means I'm, you know, I've been saved. And so, yeah, it means we can, we don't look down on people, we don't judge people who haven't been saved, because there, but by the grace of God, 
go I. I'd be the same if it wasn't for God's grace. I didn't save myself. And at the same time, it means we can know that that person could be saved by God's grace, just as we've been saved by God's grace, because if God saves us, he could save them. You don't look down on people. And so if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, if you're here and you don't, wouldn't call yourself a Christian, you can be saved. I think this passage could be talking about you. In fact, you need to be saved. You're in that pit. You need someone to save you. And you're not too good that you're beyond the need for saving. And you're not too bad that you're beyond God's ability to save you. God can save. He can save anyone. And some of us here, we're a testimony to, testament to that. It's God that saves us by his grace. We don't take credit for it. But more than just saving us, God does more than just reach into the pit and pull us out and then send us on our way. More than just saves us, he saves us and then adopts us into his family. We're now children of God, adopted by him. Have a look at verse 7. Such good news. Verse 7, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. So we're justified by by God's grace. Uh, Justified uh, means made right, or just as if I never sinned. Uh, The slate's been wiped clean. Nothing, there's no wrongdoing on your name anymore. God's wiped it away. So you've been justified uh, by his grace. And says we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. Might is a funny word in English. It's like maybe, we maybe will become heirs of eternal life. No, it's, it's in this context, it's, it's so that. So that we can become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. It's a sure thing. It's not a maybe, it's a sure thing. So now that we've been justified, we become heirs. An heir is someone who inherits something. So God adopts us into his family as one of his children who inherit his possessions, which is incredible. And what's the thing that we inherit? It tells us there, the hope of eternal life. And again, hope, it's a sure hope. It's a guaranteed hope. We guaranteed eternal life with him. Good life. Forever with him in paradise. Not just a family home when your parents die. It's like a a mansion, a heavenly mansion God gives us. Jesus tells us that in his father's house, there are many rooms and he's going there to prepare a place for us. That's what we're inheriting. Incredible thing that we have to look forward to. And so that changes who we are because we're, we're God's children now. We're no longer foolish and, and disobedient. We're no longer deceived. We've been saved from that. We've been given God's Holy Spirit. We're washed and renewed. We're made new. And so now, as God's children, we should look like Him. We're God's children, so we should look like God. We look like God as we relate to, particularly, uh, it tells us in verse 1, we look like God as we relate to Chris Minns and as we relate to Anthony Albanese. Have a look at verse 1. It says, Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good. So Paul, he's concerned about how the church in Greece relates to the earthly government which seems like a weird thing to to say now that you're a new a new creation what's the thing first thing to do submit to government uh which is weird um but in titus chapter one and two we've seen a lot about living differently this is not the first time it's talked about living differently we've seen a lot in chapter one and two about living differently at church and at home but how now the 
the emphasis is on how we treat our worldly rulers. But that's just as important. We'll be submitting to our governments. We'll be submitting to the local, state and federal governments, obedient to the law. Uh, which I think as Christians, we kind of hate that idea of having to submit to the government. We do it begrudgingly. Uh, but we need to remember that God's the one who put the government in power. God's the one who put, it, put the, power, the, uh, the governments in place and Chris Minns and our political parties are there because God put them there. They've been established by God. And so we're to, do, we're to be ready to do whatever is good, which is more than just passive obedience. Sure, I'll do whatever they ask of me. No, it's, it's looking for opportunities to do good, going out of your way. We're not stingy with our good works. We're zealous for good works, excited to live God's way, excited for good works when it becomes to how we act towards government. Because God wants society to be structured and ordered. He doesn't want anarchy. He doesn't want chaos. He doesn't want Christians trying to rebel and overthrow the government. And so be eager to obey the law, even when the law looks dumb. Particularly when the law looks dumb, because I think that's when it's hardest. Uh, I had this last week or two weeks ago. I was in in, uh, in the CBD in in Sydney. And um, I was crossing the road at Wynyard and uh, at the pedestrian crossing... And I pushed the button and I was waiting for the, the little man to turn green so I could cross. And I felt like an idiot because there was no cars. Like there was no cars and it would have been super safe to cross. But I was like, well, the law is that if you only cross at a pedestrian crossing at an intersection when the thing's green, right? And so I'm just waiting. And people come up behind and... Uh, kind of stand and, and wait for a little bit as well. And then, like, and then there's no cars and they kind of look at me and they cross and I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. Um, and it felt like it would have been so easy just to, just to cross and it would have been fine. But that was me trying to submit to the government in a small way. It's just really very small example. Uh, and if I could have just walked 20 meters up the road and crossed, out, not at the crossing, whatever the, there's a certain distance you, gotta, you can cross outside of it, whatever that is. Anyway, I could have done that. Uh, but no, I was waiting and... Um, that for me, that was a moment where I had to choose. Am I going to obey the government in this stupid situation that the dumb rules? Uh, <laughs> but no, I was happy to do it. I was happy to do it. But it looked, for you, it might, look, it might look different. It might look different. Uh, it might be not stealing. It might be uh, you get paid cash in hand at work and the temptation is to declare zero income. But actually... You've got an opportunity there. You can submit to government and you can declare your, your income and pay tax on it. That's the right thing to do. At uh, the ch- self-checkout at Coles, uh, you could scan apples and tick their onions and save a couple of bucks. Uh, you might not even know you could do that. Now you're tempted. Um, but don't. But don't because we don't want to steal. We don't want to steal, right? We, as Christians, we want to be doing good. We want a, an opportunity to, to obey the law. And so don't, I don't know, things like don't, don't download illegal music or don't download illegal movies. Um, that, that kind of stuff. You've got to work out what it looks like for you. But it means being eager to do good. We should look like godly citizens while we're on this earth, submitting to our government. The only time, though, we're not to obey the law is if it contradicts God's law. Uh, God's law comes first, human laws come second. But, to be honest, that's pretty rare. It's pretty rare that happens. And so we need to be careful that we don't use that as an excuse to not obey any laws. 
and we just kind of throw out the whole thing just because of that one instance that may never happen. We should be good in how we act towards government, but more than that, we should be good in how we act towards other people. We get that in verse 2. We're told to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate and always be gentle towards everyone. So slander no one means that the idea of not being abusive, not speaking evil towards someone, not using your words to, to cut people down. And the actual word is, is blaspheme. So in other parts of Scripture, we're told not to blaspheme towards God, to speak, we're not to speak badly towards God. Here we're told not to speak badly towards people, other people. Because God loves those people and we're speaking bad about His creation. So don't, don't slander. And we instead would be peaceable. So not fighting, not abusive, not hurting others. We're to be considerate and gentle. We're to be fair and meek. That is speaking and acting with, with gentleness. Uh, the fruit of the Spirit comes to mind that, that Paul talks about in Galatians. The fruit that, of a changed life as Christians. And one of them is gentleness. That's what we're told to be here. Now, it doesn't mean being a, it's not being a doormat. It's not being passive and letting people just trample all over you. But it's exercising the greater strength of not responding to evil with evil. So putting other people first, before ourselves. And who are we to do this towards? Is it just the people we like? Is it just our friends? Just people that we get along with at church? No. It says, the whole spectrum, it says slander no one and be gentle towards everyone. So that's it. That covers everyone in the whole world. There's no one left out of that spectrum. It's a complete list. That's who we're to do this with. Everyone. We're to act this way towards everyone we meet, which is hard. What is that even going to look like? What does that even look like to, to do all these things? Well, I've just kind of summarized them a little bit, but it's, it looked like this. Someone who's doing this is going to look like someone who's loving and kind. Someone who goes out of their way for others. Someone who's gentle in action and gentle in words. It would be someone who's not rough or harsh, that they're not hating others, but they pursue peace. Someone who's obedient. And someone who's no longer foolish, but living God's way. So that's what this person looks like, this transformed person, a renewed person, a child of God, living his way from this passage in Titus chapter 3. And do you know who that reminds me of? That reminds me of, of Jesus. You read the gospel accounts, and that describes Jesus and how he acts towards other people and his attitude and his behavior. So where to look? Where to look like Jesus? Which makes sense as his followers that we'd be like him. And it's a high bar. It's a high bar. It can seem too high maybe. But this is how we're reminded to act. Remind the people to act this way. It's not unrealistic. I don't think it's, I don't think it's unrealistic because it's God that's at work changing us to be like this. God's the one doing it. So will we, will we be like this all the time? No, of course not. But as God's children, we want to look like our Heavenly Father. And so we've, we want to devote ourselves to doing good, devote ourselves to these things, which is the last thing that verse 8 picks up. Have a look at verse, verse 8, the end of the, the passage we read. It says, This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. So we should be carefully devoted 
We should be carefully devoted to doing good. That's what we should devote our life to. We want to be good doers, not do-gooders. I just made that up, but I think, I think that makes sense. We want to be good doers, not do-gooders. A do-gooder is someone who just does the right thing when, when it suits them. When someone's watching, and they, well, when they're going to gain from it, they're a bit hypocritical, they're kind of virtue signaling. They're a do-gooder. That's not what you want. That shouldn't be us. We want to genuinely do good things and be excited and zealous to do good things. We want to be good doers. So regardless of whether people are watching us or not, not minimum good. Don't look for the minimum amount of good to do. That's what the Pharisees did. Jesus slammed them. Don't do that. But look for the maximum amount of good that you can do. Do that. And it means that we can't just be Sunday Christians. You can't just be a Christian part of, part of your week or with some people and not with others or some of the time, not when you're driving or whatever it is. Your whole life is going to be transformed. Your whole life's transformed by God's grace. And hopefully, as we do this together... Hopefully, as we live this way, we can undo some of the damage that Christians have done to Christ's name. We can help get Jesus back to number one <laughs> on the list. Because wouldn't it be great if, if, as Christians, if we did look like Christ? Wouldn't it be great if people looked on and saw us and po- we, that our lives are pointing people to Jesus? Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great if people noticed that? Because these things are excellent. These things are profitable. For everyone. So living this way means we're going to stand out. We're going to look different. Your friends might ask, why are you doing that? People are going to notice your lives are different. And hopefully going to point them to the good things that Jesus has done in your life. That we're not living under a curse of sin anymore. It's intriguing. And when Christians live good lives, genuinely looking like our Lord Jesus Christ, that's attractive. And that's one of the ways that God's been growing his church for the past 2,000 years. So let's keep at it. We've been saved by God. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy, because of his grace. We're no longer slaves to sin. Now we're children of God. We're excited. We're eager to do good deeds. So here's a question for you. What's one way that you could devote yourself to doing what is good? That's what we're told to do. Devote yourself to doing what is good. What's, what might that look like for you? What's one way that you'd like to change? Um, perhaps the first step is accepting God's grace, accepting God's offer of salvation. Don't bother thinking about good works or doing good. That's what needs to happen first. God needs to do that renewal in you. So maybe that's the first step. If that's you, I'd love to chat to you about it, how, how that could happen. That might be the first thing. Or maybe if you are a Christian, perhaps it's changing how you act towards others. You look at that list, you're like, I don't actually do some of those things. Maybe that's the thing to work on. To pray that God would change you in that way. Rid yourself of malice or be more gentle or whatever it is. Or perhaps it's just being more thankful towards God and what he has done. It was great Adam before prayed a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a great thing to pray for. Be thankful for what God has done in you and for you. As God's children, let's devote ourselves to doing what is good. Let's keep doing it. How about I pray? Now, that God would help us to do that, let's pray. Our Lord God, and we thank you for the kindness and love that you've shown us when our Savior appeared. Thank you that you saved us, not because of righteous things that we've done, but because of your mercy. And Lord, we thank you that you've saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by your Spirit. 
you poured out your spirit on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so that having been justified by your grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We thank you for these things. Help us as your heirs, as your children, as your sons and daughters to live your way, to honor you and to look like our brother Jesus. Amen.